0: today we're going to talk about Shakespeare's Macbeth, Act 1 and Act 2, Act 1, Scenes 1 through 7, as well as Act 2, Scenes 1 and 2. So let's start with Act 1, Scene 1 in review. So three witches gather together. And the very first lines that they have are very famous lines. They say, fair is foul and foul is fair. If you recall, Father Henry Garnett and the fact that he was a Jesuit and he employed the use of a certain principle by which he made his words more ambiguous than they otherwise needed to be during the gun or during the gunpowder plot. We remember that what is the name of the term for when somebody uh, intentionally uses words in an ambiguous way so as to make their meaning unclear? Yes, equivocation. equivocation. Very good. And in fact, he had written a treatise qual- called "Equivocation" on this. This will be one of the major themes in this text especially when receiving prophecies what do they mean these words can mean one thing or another and in fact we will soon see that this entire play is about uh two different ways to see or perceive reality that what is for one person potentially fair is for another person foul what is sweet for one is foul for another we have an expression for this even in our language one man's trash is another man's treasure treasure very good excellent work all right recall that these three witches are called themselves the Weird Sisters. And the big question that we have about them is, A, are they the fates from Greek mythology? Are they the so-called Moirai or the Graoi, the ones who had to, uh, if you ever watched Hercules, which gets mythology a little wrong, those three old hags that have to share one eye, one eye that sees the future, and uh, purportedly all things together. Or are they actually witches with magical powers given to them by Satan? Um, And so... Let's recall this: Just because something about Macbeth, something said about Macbeth is that it is one of the most topical of Shakespeare's plays. So let's think about a few of the themes within Macbeth itself and how they relate to James, and maybe we will be able to see why it is that Shakespeare chose to include them. Recall that in 1597, James wrote a work. Does anybody remember what the name of that work was? You were recently quizzed on it. Yes,. Dyne Monologia." or in demonology and English translation. He wrote a work on demons, so something he's very interested in is the supernatural. Second thing we know about him, he had presided over a certain kind of trial, sorts of trials that went on for about 200 years in Europe. What sorts of trials were they? We would have our own correlate in America, in Salem, yes? which trials? Witch trials. He presided himself over witch trials. So he cared a lot about demons, and he believed in witches, and particularly he believed, in which is because he himself, as a monarch, did not feel safe. And what is one of the reasons, what are two of the reasons why he would not have felt safe as a monarch? Yes? Everyone who trusts is trying to kill you and take your power. Possibly so, but not exactly no. No, those are not the two explicit reasons. What are the two explicit reasons why he would not have felt safe? There are actually, three, if you really think about it. A, what happened to his father, who was also a monarch? Yes. Assassinated. Assassinated. So, safe as a monarch? Not really. We even know that with our sort of standing for a monarch. Who knows the president? Our only Catholic president who was himself assassinated in the 20th century. Yes? John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. JFK. Yes. Of course. What happened to James I's mother? Yes? She was, she was executed. Alright. And then in 1600, it was 1600 to 1601 when he was still James VI, James VI of Scotland. What did people attempt to do to him? They attempted to assassinate him. So he's very interested in the idea of being a monarch and of regicide being committed when are you ever safe as a human in this world well if as a king you have the most power of anybody and you can still be king or excuse me killed when are you safe in this world never Never. and in fact that will be a major theme here appearances versus reality insofar as you only look at the appearance of things you see the flowers but what do you not see creeping beneath the flowers the snakes the true danger exactly one of the parts of this play is that we are always on thin ice and what can happen at any moment if you are skating on thin ice even though we are all californians oh, you can fall through exactly very good so remember this james I cares about the supernatural he wrote a work called demonology essentially that's its translation he also headed witch trials so he's very superstitious cares a lot about the power of the king and what that means, and the capacity for others to be treacherous. And one point that you brought up, and I'll just tell you this example, very interesting. Have I ever explained to you all the story of the sword of Damocles? Well, very quickly, I'll just repeat it. Damocles was, I, I forget some of the details of this story, but there was a king, and he had an advisor who very much wanted to be king. And so one day, the king saw the advisor staring longingly at the throne. He said, go ahead, take a seat, see how it feels. And the advisor thinks, well, this is clearly some trick. Are you sure I should sit there? And the king says, no, 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 it's not a trick. Go ahead, go ahead, just have a seat, see how it feels. And the advisor sits down, he's like, ooh, yeah, this this is exactly as nice as I thought it was. The king's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anything weird about that? And the advisor's like, no, no. And then the advisor looks up, and he sees above him a sharpened sword, Hanging directly above him, about 10 feet up. Hanging on by a single thread. The advisor freaks out. And he gets out of the throne. And the king says, well, how did it feel? when you understood what it was like to be king. The advisor is like, oh. He realizes that to be king, you sit on a throne. But your fate hangs by a single what at all times? Thread, thread exactly. Is even the king safe from execution or assassination or death? Absolutely not. All right. Let's see if. The slides will keep moving. They've been a little odd today. I think the battery is going out on them. All right, very good. So act one, scene two. Let's get into the action of this play exactly as it is. So something I just want to make sure that you have in mind is just how great a hero Macbeth is. At the beginning of this play, we do not see this happen, but we hear a report from a sergeant on the field of battle where a battle has just happened about the glorious deeds of Macbeth. So, what's the situation? King Duncan has been betrayed by a man named MacDonald. MacDonald has received reinforcements from a Viking, a Norwegian, a Norwegian king named Swayno. Swayno has received himself reinforcements and supplies from the Thane of Cawdor. There are... Three, there are two different fronts of this battle therefore and one of the fronts is split into two who is sent in to quell the rebellion the heroic macbeth with a five and a half foot long sword a five and a half foot long sword that he uses to save the king's son malcolm he is very what brave, brave heroic exactly he's a hero he literally cuts through the forces of McDonald until he can cut through McDonald. In fact, he—I have it here—he brandished his steel, which smoked with bloody execution, and carved his way through McDonald's men until he came face to face with the slave and unseamed him from the nave—that's your belly button—to his chops. That's your mouth. Cut him in two. Cut him in half. And which I think is a very nice symbol for the fact that. This man, MacDonald, was trying to breed schisms, was trying to cut the country in half, and how does he die? It's by himself being cut in half. It's very very Dante-like. It's, uh, it reminds me of the schismatics in Circle 8 of the Inferno, where you see Ali with his face cut in half, and Muhammad with his belly cut in half. Very interesting. In any case, then he sti- sticks his head on the battlements. Cuts off his head and sticks it on the battlements. So, good job, Macbeth. After he does that... And you don't need to write this part exactly. He then goes with Banquo to fight against the forces of Sueño. He defeats them. And then, even then, he has a third part to the battle to go to. He sees that there are reinforcements from the thane of Cador, And he goes and he wins there too. My goodness, what a hero. He defends the honor of the land. He saves the prince, the son of the king. And he defeats three separate forces all at once what a guy what a guy and so that's what we hear about Macbeth. that's how he's introduced to us hero or villain to start off with very much a hero but now let's see act one scene three where we actually meet him himself and we see that his very first lines draw a connection between him you can write this again draw a connection between him and who so foul and fair a day i have not seen what language there do we see that we've seen before and where have we seen it Yes, the fair and foul language, and the witches. This is an instance, again, of equivocation. So foul and fair day I have not seen. Well, what's foul about it? What is unsweet? Well, the fact that it's a bloody day, full of death, and there has been treachery. But why is it fair? Well, victory is in the air, and he has himself increased in rank, and he will actually receive soon an increase in rank. Hmm, very good, very good. Well, Macbeth and his lieutenant Banquo now happen across the three weird sisters. And this is potentially evidence for the fact that they're real because two people see them, but also potentially evidence for the fact that they're not real, and that they reveal the ambitions of two men. And what man is without ambition? Amen. None so far as we know. And in any case, this is what they say to Macbeth. Again, highly ambiguous language. Hail Thane of Gloms. That's what he starts off as. Make sure that you know that. Hail Thane of Cawdor. But he just defeated the Thane of Cawdor. Why would he be being called the Thane of Cawdor? Is it potentially because he is about to become Thane of Cador, And then, hail he that shall be king hereafter? Very odd that he would be called king hereafter, seeing as he's only the Thane of Gloms at this point. Hmm. Hmm, let's keep moving. Because this greeting, understandably, and besides the fact that these are three heinous-looking ladies who are covered in hair, and so Banquo actually says, I know not whether to call them women or men. There's this weird ambiguity about gender that plays through this, uh, this entire play. In fact, we'll see some of that with Lady Macbeth when she asks to be unsexed, and she'll talk about milking herself, but not with that which nourishes, but that which poisons people, and I'll explain what that means, because it does make sense. In any case, Macbeth is unnerved. He's already the Thane of Glamis. He inherited that title from his father. Why would they refer to him as Cawdor? Because Cawdor, as of now, that Thane, that Duke, as it were, remember this is a Scottish ranking system, not English, he still lives. And he says, why do you dress me in borrowed robes? And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. Is it the case that anybody plays any role forever, or only for a finite and limited amount of time? Finite, finite limited, of course, of course. And so he's very much flabbergasted. He's He is uh, nonplussed by the fact that they would call him king. All right. And so Banquo then wants to know, what's, what's my fate? Tell me. And they really equivocate with him. They say three things that all mean the same thing. They say, you are lesser than Macbeth, but greater. Macbeth will be king. Banquo will not. You are not so happy as Macbeth, but happier. Though he will not be king, his children will be kings. And in fact, that's what they say last. You are not king, but you will father kings. And the question you may well want to ask yourself, I might ask you, like say a bell work question like this, or give you a very short WDP on this. is: Would you prefer to be king or to have your children be king? children okay. it's very interesting because what does it mean to have a crown if it is a barren crown and so whether Macbeth is being rewarded at all when he becomes king will be a serious question or whether that's like the gift of Midas it's a golden touch that ends up destroying that which you love most and potentially he will have to destroy that which he loves and covets most in order to become king we'll talk about that all right good then act one scene three continued the Thanes, Ross and Lennox arrived and they greet Macbeth as Thane of Cawdor. Shocking moment. Because he was the Thane of what until this moment? Thane. Gloms. And so now they say, you're the Thane of Cawdor. And at first he's like, what? He's still alive. And they say, no, no, no. He's existing under heavy judgment. Which means he's about to get executed for being a traitor. Which means he can no longer be the Thane of Cawdor. Which means we need the Thane of Cawdor. And, well, you're a big time hero who just helped to put down that rebellion. Why don't you be the Thane of Cawdor? And then moment of shock. Why is it the case, do you think, that Macbeth would be shocked in being told at this particular moment that he was the Thane of Cawdor? What has he just been told? Yes? He's just been told the prophecy by the witches that you will be the Thane of Cawdor, and then the king. So now he sees that they were right about something. Well, if they were right about him being the Thane of Cawdor, what might they also be right about? About him being king. And I want you to keep that in mind because if you heard that there was a prophecy that you would someday be king, what would you think about every day of your life? Prophecy. That prophecy. And, not just that prophecy, but how you might get that prophecy to come, what? True. True. Ah, Ah, ah. Alright, well, interestingly enough, imagine that you start thinking about becoming king and the ways by which you might become king. And something interesting about this is, at this point, Macbeth does not need to be treacherous. Because, there is no law of primogeniture at this time. The law of primogeniture is, your successor will be your firstborn son. That's not how it works in Scotland. In Scotland, the most powerful Thane then becomes the next king. So who would you imagine would be next in line to the throne? Macbeth, the superhero who could put down multiple Thanes and a Viking warlord. Yes, of course. That's not how it's going to go, though. But that's a little bit ahead. A little bit ahead in any case. Duncan, King Duncan, has now promoted Macbeth. And he learns this from Thanes Ross and Lennox. And in fact... He wants to come see Macbeth and Banquo and personally thank them. This means that he'll be staying in Macbeth's house. Which means Macbeth might have an opportunity to do what should he so desire? Potentially be treacherous. And we'll talk about what that means exactly. Because as of now, Macbeth has not had to do anything treacherous or evil or bad. He's gotten to cover himself in glory. To earn golden opinions of himself. And that is what has promoted him through the ranks. But is he willing to give up his good name? Is he willing to give up his good conscience in order to be king? In fact, here's my major question to you all. Is becoming king worth giving up your own humanity? What is most important to you? Maintaining your purity of heart or conscience? Consciousness? Excuse me, conscience? Or increasing your social rank? We'll see what the answer is in this Macbeth. Well, we'll have to see what your answers are, too. In any case, Macbeth, upon hearing that he has been increased in rank and that he is now famous, Cawdor thinks, can the devil speak true? Where is this prophecy coming from? And Banquo even says, well, it must all be true, which makes Macbeth think that he's going to be king. It just is up to him how he becomes it. In any case, Macbeth ponders this. And then he wonders a couple times about the moral status of these witches. And I'll explain this in a second. A couple quotes here. If their prediction is evil, how could it have been fulfilled? And fulfilled for the good. How, if what they do is evil, could something good come from that? And if the predictions of the witches are fateful, this is my big question, how can the outcomes of Macbeth's deeds be good or evil? If they must be what they are necessarily. The question here is this. If these witches know fate, and the fate of Macbeth is to be king, can anything he does in the service of fate be good or evil, or is it simply fate itself? Is it simply necessary and predetermined? That is an evil question. Because if you've already assumed that the end is fixed, and then you can do anything in order to make sure the end happens, what sorts of things can you justify doing Evil things, that's exactly right. This is casuistry, as they would say about the Jesuits. This is itself equivocal reasoning. He's trying to talk himself into doing what? Evil, exactly. He's trying to say it makes sense. But, he continues, if what they said was good, why is the last part of their prediction evil? That That is, that Macbeth will somehow have to unseat Duncan and then potentially Malcolm, his son, and Donald it. And those are the two sons of King Duncan. Make sure that you know that Malcolm will soon be declared heir to the throne, which will uh, sort of seal, well, it will certainly seal Duncan's fate. In any case, so what Macbeth thinks about is whether the witches are foul creatures making fair predictions or fair creatures making foul ones. This makes me think of this famous syllogism, which really hurts a lot of people's brains. Three lines, major premise, minor premise, and conclusion. All Cretans are liars. Minor premise. I am a Cretan, therefore I am a liar. Did I just tell you a liar or a truth? Well, it sounds like a truth. Because I said all Cretans are liars, and that I am therefore a liar because I am a Cretan. But if I am a Cretan, what must I be? A liar. liar. So what must I have been doing when I said that to you? A liar. And I'll say this, I think if you think about that in, in in an even more sophisticated manner, just because you're a liar, does that mean you lie every time you speak? No. 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 And So it's a pure logical problem, but it's a very interesting one. Because are they foul and evil? Are they demons that tell the truth? Or are they like angels or truth speakers that tell evil truths? Hmm. It's hard to say. Hard to say. In any case, what we need to be focusing on is who is responsible for the evil that gets done in this world? Is it simply fate, or is it through the deeds of man and the choices that men make before their actions? Alright, the king then says to Macbeth that there's no way he can fully repay him, and we all think this is an instance of dramatic irony, because we're like, don't worry, Macbeth will get what he wants from you soon, soon enough. In any case, because he so saved the eldest son, Malcolm, from capture, and he's driven off the traitors Macdonald and uh, Cotter. He's done just such a great service to the crown. My goodness, how little could King Duncan know about the darkness lurking in the heart of Macbeth? Well, then Duncan says he has a major announcement to make. And we are all expecting a major announcement. The biggest thing he could probably announce is his heir. Right after Macbeth has done such great things, who will we expect to be the new heir to the throne? Macbeth. And probably who also thinks that Macbeth is going to be called, uh, is going to be made successor, especially because he just heard a, a prophecy saying this? Macbeth. He probably thinks, oh man, this is going to be the moment, and he's going to say I'm going to be king, and then this prophecy from these ugly-looking, foul creatures with lots of hair everywhere, who might be good, might be bad, is going to come true, and it's all going to be great for me. And then King Duncan names his son as his successor. I want you just to think about the full implication of hearing that information from Macbeth. He's just named his son. Not exactly fair. Not exactly the custom of the Scottish at that time. He makes Malcolm the Prince of Cumberland. He will be king. But what prophecy has Macbeth just heard? That he will be king. That he will be king. And so now what has been put directly in the path of Macbeth and his face? Not only Duncan, but now Malcolm. Now it is not simply the case that because of his glorious deeds he might easily become king and remain pure and unalloyed. But now he might have to do what to become king? He might have to do treachery. He might himself have to become the new treacherous, betraying Thane of Cawdor as the one before him. And so, you see the complication there, the wrinkle in his plan. You can just imagine the vein in the top of his head starting to pound. What does this mean? What am I going to do? And in fact, this puts him in a major moral moral quandary. Do I do that with my vaulting ambition? dictates or do i stay true to my king it's a terrible situation for him to find himself in in any case important in this scene ah yes this introduces to us a theme i was talking about about the snake in the grass the snake beneath the flowers which is a metaphor that um lady macbeth will use just a little bit later there is no art duncan says to find the mind's construction in the face. That means you can't see the intentions of a man. Or the honesty of a man in his face. Or calls, calls to me Geryon, The creature that takes us from circle 7 to 8. In a downward downward spiral. Dante's in Dante's Inferno. Recall, what, what does the face of Geryon look like? He has a scorpion's tail. Sort of a lion's body with garish swirls. What sort of face? Not just a human face, but the face of a what sort of man? man. A just man. So from his face, you would think he was what? Honest. Good. And yet from his effects and his poisonous tail, you would know what about him? Ah. So Macbeth looks an honest man. We'll have to see from what he does, what he really is, what he's really made of. And so one cannot tell the honesty or goodness of a man by his looks alone. We all know this from the Odyssey last year, the great poem about things not being as they seem. In any case, I say, think of actors themselves, the fact that you'll be watching this as a play. What are actors proof of? The fact that humans are very good at doing what to other humans? Lying. Deceiving. Lying. Yes, you watch a a commercial, a guy eats a a Mentos, and then all of a sudden he's got the know-how to get everything done. Has anybody seen a Mentos commercial before? Or Five Gum, you shoot some gum, and then you have a giant super fan on you, and then you're cool or you drink some sprite and all of a sudden i don't know you can slam dunk actually they make fun of that sort of joke in any case you see actors all the time pretending to feel feelings they don't actually you see them kiss on the stage and you're like oh yeah do they really feel that way for each other the answer is obviously what no no humans are really good at deceit and so we better know this all right this i need you to know write down this diagram now it's called fried triangle i want you there are two things about this you need to be able to correctly identify this you also need to be able to tell me where each of these parts happens in the text, potentially for a WDP on Thursday. So there are five parts to this. It's based on Aristotle's uh, poetics, uh, his ideas on drama. So every single drama has these five parts, and we'll have to see whether this applies to Macbeth as well. There's an introduction where you learn the initial situation of the play. There's then a complication. At least so far as we are concerned, this complication would be the fact that we heard that Macbeth is supposed to become king, but now there's a successor to the king that is not him. And so that is a complication because that's going to change the course of events of his life and of this place. Third, there's a climax. It's not always in the middle of the place. Sometimes it's near the very, very end. And in this place, I would say it is certainly near the end. But we'll have to think about that because there are several climactic moments. Four, there's a falling action. That's when the pieces start to settle again. Something big has happened. And now we have to see the new map and what it looks like now. And then five, the conclusion, which is called in French the Denouement. And that's a good term to know. Uh, how do things end after how do they begin? How do they begin? What do things look like now? Want you to know that. Be thinking about that. Alright. Themes so far: fair versus foul. That's equivocation and, of course, good and evil versus fate. Can your acts be good and evil if you are fated to do them? This will be an argument Macbeth uses. To steal himself before killing the king. If I kill the king. And I was fated to kill the king. Then that which I did was not what? Evil. Precisely. Borrowed robes. Are any roles in life eternal? This is a major question also for James. Who himself sees just how precious. Just how. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Vulnerable life can be. Having himself almost been assassinated. Having himself almost been blown up in the gunpowder after his father was assassinated, after his mother was executed. My goodness. And then, of course, appearance versus reality. I have a very famous Latin quote here, Esse Quam Videri, which means to be rather than to seem. Which, if you ever watched Stephen Colbert's old uh, late-night show, he had uh, Videri Quam Esse, to seem rather than to be, which is very clever for an actor, right? Uh, All right, good, 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 good. All right, Act 1, Scene 5, this is where things start to pick up. Lady Macbeth is here reading a letter, and in this letter, Macbeth is being very forthright with her. He tells her of his deeds. He tells her of his increased rank. Now he's saying of he tells her of the three witches. And in telling her of the three witches, her ambition, the fires of her ambition, are stoked. In fact, she says, spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, she asks to unsex her. That means make her no longer a woman. That means make her no longer subject to the rules of human sympathy. If her husband is to become king. He will have to kill the king, especially because the king is com- going to come stay at their home. She needs to not be like a normal human, not like a normal woman, and care about human social relationships. She needs to put away her care for another human life and her love for another human. She must become inhuman, satanic, demonic, like a witch. And in fact, she says, come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall. Women's breasts, Milk for their children. Something that nourishes and brings life. But she does not wish to bring life here. She wishes to bring what? Death. She wishes to put poison where once there was milk. She is going to kill rather than to bring life. She is going to be opposite from what a woman is supposed to be in her mind. Which is very powerful. She is trying to go against what itself in order to achieve this new rank. Life and nature itself. And in fact, just to continue this, and I know there's a lot here ah yes yes i I have it near the bottom here she is worried that though she is capable of going against nature itself that her husband is too virtuous is too kind is too gentle a soul all the things that make him a good man will make him a bad what killer murderer in cold blood she thinks that he is too full of the milk of human kindness somebody's full of human kindness they're probably a what sort of person a good person, right. The sort of person you might actually want to be your king. And yet he's going to have to be a cold-blooded killer if he wants to become king. And he does want to become king more than anything. In fact, I'll share share—I'll share a very famous quote where he talks about his, over, his over-vaulting ambition, that he has nothing inside him but ambition. In any case, she reveals her intentions to her husband. She says, you need to kill the king. He's going to be here. This is exactly the course of action. He's held some illusions in his mind that maybe he could just... Naturally, become king. And then he wouldn't have to despoil dis- himself or do anything evil. He could stay pure. That would be great. Ideal. She dis. She dis. Uh, what's the expression I'm looking for? She disavows. Dis. Uh, dis. Or disabuses him from that notion. Very good. That's the expression we use. And she says, "You're too loyal to the king." your face my thing is a book where men may read strange matters again face 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 she thinks she can read his mind through his face and it's very that's sort of a different impression than when we saw king duncan say something in any case lady macbeth says we need to be treacherous we need to act fast we need to kill the king if you were to become king this is the way of things and so act one scene six when we need to move pretty fast here duncan arrives at macbeth's castle Castle, excuse me, in Varanus, and comments on its pleasantness and good vibe. This, isn't it, is it, this is an instance of dramatic irony. I need you to write down this concept. Dramatic irony is when the audience knows something that the characters do not. We obviously know that this wonderful, pleasant place where King Duncan thinks he will be safe and happy will actually be the place that he is what? Killed. Killed. So it's a place that he's least safe. It seems like heaven, but it will actually be where? Hell. It's a place of deceit. And where appearances, uh, where uh, hmm, reality is obscured by appearances, and so Lady Macbeth welcomes King Duncan, and King Duncan remarks on how happy he is to be with Macbeth and his wife. I love him greatly, and will continue to show him favor. It's like he's a figure of God here, vi- visiting Macbeth's house, and we'll we'll see what that means soon. In any case, in any case, Macbeth then has his first soliloquy. A soliloquy, you will call is when an actor is alone on the stage and reveals his thoughts and intentions, his plans. If it were done when it is done, then it is better it were done quickly. He's talking about his evil act. Does it matter whether evil is done quickly or slowly? Does it make it any less evil? No. And so he's trying to, like when you fall on the stairs and people laugh at you and you run away from the stairs really quickly, he's trying to act as if it didn't even or it won't even have an effect or happen. In any case... He then starts to lay things out. He's having second thoughts. He's like, gosh, you know, I'm pretty good, man. I am full of this human kindness. Man, this king who's coming to stay in my house, well, he's here in double trust. A, he's my cousin. B, he's my king. I would add three, he's your guest. That's the zinnia in the Greek-Roman religions. That's the guest host relationship. There's a triple bond between him and this man. He should be totally what in Macbeth's house? He should be totally safe. And yet... He's not at all. When is anyone safe in this world? Never. Not until you're dead. Then you're safely dead. And he thinks he should lock the door against any murderer. Not bear the knife himself. And he even thinks about how good and benevolent a king Duncan has been. He's been a great man. He's been a good man. And he's related to Macbeth. And Macbeth has this responsibility to him. He's really grappling with his own personal what's at this moment. Demons. Exactly right. And so Macbeth then decides, no, 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 we're not, I'm done with this. We're not going to keep plotting against Duncan. Right, he tells his wife, I'm done. And then his wife really, really shows her character, shows what's, what stern stuff she is made of. He says, we will proceed no business in this man. And she says, he is no man at all. When you dared to do the deed, then you were a man. Now... That it has presented itself, you are impotent. She she actually literally questions his manhood. If you're impotent, that means you can't have children. As a man, you lack the power to produce. You know to get the whole birth process started. In any case, she she then puts the love of their relationship on the line, and this will show. This will begin. This will create the crack that will turn into a fissure between them. They start off as loving partners, paramours. They will soon be far from each other. As they will soon be far from sanity both themselves in any case she says if she had made such a promise even if it were about killing a baby she would dash the brains out of a nursing infant she's sort of like a character that has taken dante's paradiso very seriously she says if you make an oath you better what you better keep it she doesn't seem to have seen the one exception that dante threw in there does anybody recall what the exception is that you should keep every single oath because it's guaranteed by God, except under what one condition? Yes, if the if the punishment is worse than if the consequence. No, if the consequence is worse than the punishment. You, Something like that. Yeah, yeah that, that's close. Yeah, if yes, if the consequence of keeping the oath is worse than the consequence of breaking the oath. But she says, again, showing her inhumanity. Since he said to do this, even if it is a horrific deed, you better what? Do it. Just do it. Nike. I should have a swoosh right here. In any case, Macbeth here then starts to reveal himself. This is one of his most famous quotes: I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent. That means something to curb his desire. It's a horse metaphor. But only vaulting ambition with over which overleaps itself. And falls on the other. He says, I have nothing to make me less ambitious, but only that which makes it so that I will do anything to acquire what I want. And we'll see whether that is of value to him, because it seems as if he has lost his what? Money. Close. Ah, close. Huh? close. It's what Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio was. Character? Conscience. conscience. His conscience. He's lost his conscience, and we'll see whether he gets led astray. We'll see. All right, I have some questions. Now I'm going to go through these review slides very quickly. We only have two slides left today, and we need to go through them fast. Let us now start Act 2, Scene 1. All right, good. Banquo tells Macbeth that he dreamt of the witches. He's thinking about them. He's really thinking about what it is they said. And who wouldn't be? If you were Banquo and you were thinking about how your children were going to be kings, you'd probably be thinking about how, because you're pretty far removed from the throne yourself. Macbeth responds very famously, I think not of them. Yet when we can entreat an hour to serve, we would spend it in some words upon that business if you would grant the time. He's obviously lying. I mean, for a couple reasons. A, you know he's lying because he's planning to kill the king, so obviously he thinks about three witches all the time. The other reason is he says, I don't think about them, but if you have a minute later, let's talk about that definitely. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, you're like, I don't really care about that girl, but you want to talk about her for the next two hours or so? <coughs> I know, it's kind of weird, right? Like He's obviously obsessed with something here because the things that you talk about all the time are the things with which you are obsessed. There's a clear lie. He bases all his most important decisions on what these witches have said. All right, here's his big second soliloquy, and I want to read this all before the bell rings. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle towards my hand. That means the dagger is towards the king. He will hold the dagger. Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. He's imagining Art thou not fatal vision, sensible to feeling as to sight, or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation? Seems to not understand the difference between imagination and reality. Proceeding from the heat oppressed brain, I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshallest me, the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. I wonder through. I wonder after the soliloquy. Whether he feels drawn, compelled by fate; Whether he himself understands the distinction between fate and free will. Does he think he is fated now? Must he kill the king? Or is he still liable to make his own decisions? And so, we'll begin next time with Act 2, Scene 2, where Macbeth will murder the king. I will lay out what the plan is.